I'm saying in that chair, how far could you scoot? Like the Olympics of scooting? Like the Olympics of scooting. How far could you scoot? I think I could win. You think you could win? I think I could, I think I could win the Olympics of scooting. I'd root for you. I'd make a sign. Wave a little Adam flag. Matu Ferrata Nectar. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Don't Touch That, It's Haunted, a podcast where we talk about all manner of uh, spooky, taboo, and macabre subjects. I'm Grace, and uh, Adam's actually with me this week. I am. Yeah, I forgot I wasn't here last week. Yeah. I sat in this chair right here, and I talked about uh, my ghost stories from Peru. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you mention Sentences Road? I didn't, but only because we've kind of talked about it before. True. Yeah. And that wasn't Peru. I mean, it was Nebraska City, which is close enough, but... It's in the middle. It's closer to Nebraska. It's on the outskirts of Nebraska City. It's seven miles from Nebraska City, so it means it would be eight miles from Peru if you're going in a straight line. I guess. I just remember that I've as soon as I... I've that path, babe. I'm sure you have. I just remember that one, or the one time that me and my roommate Kristen went down it at midnight. We were like, all right, well, this was boring. Let's go to McDonald's. And then we went to McDonald's. Yeah. Life at a small town college is rough. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so yeah, so do we have anything to talk about before we start? I don't think we do. Uh, today's drinks. Ooh. I'm having a ginger ale because I got caught with a stomach flu. Yes, it's not the vid. Yep. It's not the vid. It's just a little, a little stomach flu. So. So I've been getting an unwanted vacation from work, but kind of enjoying it. Yeah, you need you needed a little recharge anyway. Um, I have a glass of wine that I'm drinking because I opened the bottle like a week ago and I need to drink it before it goes back. It's carbonated. I didn't know that when I bought it. Eh, eh. Bradley's trying to get in that tiny little hole. He's curious. No. Oh, oh, I thought he was going to try. He's not. Um, so what, yeah, are, that's it. what are we talking about today? Grace? So, uh, fun fact, we were actually going to talk about curses today. But you and I were watching an episode of Psych a couple of days ago, and uh, I was like, there's this this actress. She looks very, very familiar. So Adam looked it up, and uh, her name is Sarah Edmondson. And I was like, oh, that's right. She's the one that was uh, part of the Nexium cult, and she was on that documentary, The Bout. So Adam started looking up uh, Nexium. And I got messed up. Yeah. Like, mentally. Because it's, it's, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. Hollywood um, is a fucked up place even today, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. So um, if you don't know what Nexium is, we're we're going to cover it because um, we're going to do a, it's probably going to be a three-part series that we're starting today about uh, the seedy underbelly of Hollywood. Because um, as soon as that, as soon as Adam found that out, he was just kind of like, has Hollywood always been this way? And I was like, yeah, like. Hollywood's really corrupt and yeah. misogynistic and like I mean you want to think that there is a Tom Hanks for every Weinstein but that is not the case I think the bad guys overrule the good guys in Hollywood they do which um 
So I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Adam and I were once both actors. Um, we both worked professionally, but Adam moved to New York to be an actor. A lot harder than it looks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you came home. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, it worked out for me in the end. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's part of what messed you up so much is that you realized that had you succeeded, you would have been a part of this. Well, yeah. But you're a white man, so you more than likely would have been fine. Well, my, my biggest regret or my biggest fear was that I was going to become a Robin Williams, everything I mm -hmm. ever wanted and had to, mm -hmm. and had the mental the situations that I had and right. still end up killing myself. Luckily, not for Robin Williams, but I found that it's revealed that he had early onset dementia, yeah. Parkinson's. He had a lot of other problems. So that did relieve that. But then we this kind of re-triggered that, like yeah. brought me right back to... Because I don't, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but um, behind the scenes of your favorite movies, some really fucked up stuff happens sometimes, not always. And sometimes not some always. really good stuff happens. Sometimes really good stuff happens, but... I'm going to tell you today why the bad outweighs the good. So, um, like I said, this is probably going to be a three-part series. Uh, today, we are going to talk about um, the early days of Hollywood up to uh, about the mid-40s. So yeah. today and for the next three weeks, or yeah, next two weeks, uh -huh. I'm just going to do, because we've already researched this for different podcasts, I'm just going to do a Adam's Hero of Hollywood of the Week. Okay. I can't imagine there'd be too many heroes in this. Um, there, there might be a couple. If if there's one presented in this, I'll pick them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I've got backup heroes of the Hollywood. Okay, I got you. Okay. All right. Is one of them Tom Hanks? No. Oh. Should be Tom Hanks. It should always be Tom Hanks. I honestly don't know too much of the good things he's done. I, I know he's a very good human being. He's Tom Hanks, baby. That's what I'm saying. The best human being in the world. What's one of the good things he's done? Well, um, my go-to is always that he was out running in the park, and he ran into a couple that was taking their wedding photos. That's not a good thing, Dan. It's just a celebrity. Well, so he came up to him, and he said, hi, my name is Tom Hanks, which shows that he's humble. And then he oh, asked, he, he asked if he could be in their photos. Like, he, how sweet is that? I mean, he's a very nice guy. I'm not yeah. saying that, but I don't know any um, I think I think he's done a lot of, like, charity stuff. I'm sure he and, has. Yeah. And he just performed at President Biden's inauguration. Yeah. And uh, I think he goes to, like, children's hospitals and, you know, because he's Woody. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I forget that all the time. Uh, but, yeah, so we'll we'll play that by ear. Um, so, yeah, today's going to go up to about the mid-40s. Uh, mid um, next week, I think we're going to do, like, maybe the... 50s through the 80s and then the third part will be like the 90s and today so we might that might change a little bit but okay. yeah so let me pull up my notes all right so this first little bit um i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to you about the history of the casting couch which adam didn't realize was an actual thing i thought it was a porn thing which uh it kind of sort of was and that's like where the phrase comes from but it's a thing that happens still to this day. So, cue Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. So, um, I got this information from an article from theguardian.com. It's called uh, Moguls and Starlets, 100 Years of Hollywood's Corrosive Systemic Race, or er, Racism, Sexism. Well, 
You're in 2020, 2021. I mean, so. we'll, pro- we'll probably hear some stuff. Uh, you will also hear stuff from this article over the next couple of weeks. Um, so here's how this starts off. In the Hollywood Dream Factory, trauma surfaces as light entertainment. In 2013, introducing the list of Best Supporting Actress nominees at the pre-Oscars event, comedian Seth MacFarlane quipped, Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. What was chilling about this was not just that MacFarlane followed it up at the Oscars with a stream of, quote, edgy jokes, including the line that nine-year-old Kwasani Wallace had, quote, 16 years before she's too old for Clooney, unquote. And the nauseating We Saw Your Boobs song. That was a real thing that he did at the Aww, Oscars. Oh, Seth. Yeah, it was like everybody that had showed their boobs in film that year, which I get that at that time it was probably funny, but it's sad that it, at one time it was funny. You know what I mean? Like, um... What is really disturbing is that everyone, even people who had no idea what has now emerged about Weinstein's behavior, got the joke. The idea that female stars and aspiring stars are required to accept the attentions, at the very least, of older male studio executives and producers is as old as the Hollywood Hills. Why are those of us who don't attend breakfast meetings in Beverly Hills familiar with the phrase, the casting couch? Why there is even uh, euphemism for this extreme form of sexual harassment? The power imbalance between female stars and older male executives is so well broadcast that it features in Hollywood films and awards ceremonies as a plot device or as a joke, and nobody takes the trouble to hide it. In this Wade system, historic horror stories abound of executives taking advantage of starlets. Shirley Temple recalls that Offer Freed, a producer at MGM, exposed himself to her when she was 12 years old. We'll get into that later. Louis B. Lois B. Mayer insisted that, or Louis, sorry, Louis B. Mayer insisted that his protege, Julie Garland, sit on his lap. She was one of just a number of juvenile stars at the MGM studios whose punishing uh, schedule, she said, required amphetamines to get through the day and sleeping pills to rest at night. We'll get into that later as well. Ginger Rogers said that Harry Kahn, the head of Columbia, chased her around a desk making passes. Marilyn Monroe compared Hollywood to, quote, an overcrowded brothel. Joan Collins, who was warned about wolves by Monroe, says she missed out on the lead in Cleopatra because she refused to be, quote, nice to the head of 20th Century Fox, Buddy Adler, who also reportedly harassed a 19-year-old Rita uh, Marino, who was on that uh, episode of To Tell the Truth that we watched a while ago. She was the older lady. Um, I think maybe, oh, she got the crown. And she lost. Oh, she yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, if I recall correctly, she was uh, Anita in West Side Story. I wouldn't know that. You've never seen West Side Story. I know the plot. It's Romeo and Juliet with gangs. But it's so much more than that. <laughs> Go on. You don't know how long you be a jet for. You don't know. Resume life. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. 
Anyway, that's that's another movie we're adding to the list of movies you need to watch. Um, okay, where was I? Oh my god, where was I? I lost it. Ooh. As the film business settled in a California orange grove, thousands of young American women made their way to Hollywood hoping to become stars. Once inside the film colony, they were more likely to end up as waitresses or sex workers than get a screen test. The numbers weren't on their side. Actor Louise Brooks, Louise? Yeah, Louise Brooks wrote that screen tests and movie contracts were handed out not to wide-eyed hopefuls at the studio gates, but via the casting couch to women at intimate parties who gave sexual favors to influential men. She described seeing a dancer enter a hotel room with Lord Beaverbrook and, quote, a few days later, she told me that she had a contract at MGM. It was a corrupt system fraught with dangers, which are becoming visible to the public or which were becoming visible to the public. One of the biggest scandals in Hollywood history occurred in 1921 when actor Virginia, I think it's, I'm Rappy, it's R-A-P-P-E. Um, she died a few days after a party in a San Francisco hotel room. This is a very sad story. Uh, the cause of death was her ruptured bladder and the, and the comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was accused of raping her at the party. The implication being that this, this didn't happen, but the next sentence is a little hard to hear. So um, the implication being that his excess weight caused her bladder to burst. Arbuckle was eventually cleared. He hadn't raped Rappi, and the damage to her internal organs had been caused elsewhere by venereal disease or backstreet abortions or both. Oh, God. Yeah, which, trigger warning, this is going to come up a lot, so be prepared. Um, despite his exoneration, Arbuckle was scapegoated for the crime and blacklisted from Hollywood so as to not remind people of the scandal. Um, they did a really good episode about this on My Favorite Murder. And, like, it ruined this man. And he didn't he didn't do anything. Like, he just happened to be at this party. Right. And, like, it ruined his career. Like, it, it's just fucking horrible. And people today still think that he did it. Like, it's one of those. Poor but guy. No, like, he was cleared. Like, yeah. He's not Hero of the Week material, though. Because all he did was not rape someone. And that right. should be everybody's... <laughs> Everybody's I mean, main thought. That should be the <laughs> default setting, really. So, um, however, the public had now glimpsed the sordid side of the film business. The scandal, excuse me, uh, concentrated a full glare of the world's attention on Hollywood's young, desperate, and sometimes tragic starlets. The industry's solution was Will Hayes, who in 1922 was appointed president of the newly formed motion picture producers, and distributors of America. Hayes is now best known for his notorious film censor censorship, quote, production code, but his methods for sourcing the business clean went beyond what appeared on screen. He found a new larger home for the Girls Studios Club, for instance, a chaperone dormitory come sorority house for young women starting out in Hollywood. It had been founded in 1916 by a group of Hollywood women, but this 1926 incarceration, which stayed open until 75, 
benefited from the donations of studios and film stars and aimed to replace the image of the preyed on quote extra girl with the smart and well-mannered studio girl. That is to say, making over the potential victims of the problem rather than addressing the root cause, right. which has been our problem for a long, long time. That's always been Hollywood's thing. Is is they, that, they put yeah. a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. They put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Yeah, yeah. It's like, You need oh. to suture that baby up. Right. It's like, oh, they've uh, got a scrape and some internal bleeding underneath. Well, let's just uh, put some Neosporin on the scrape and uh, call it good. So... <laughs> In much the same way, stars such as Gloria Swanson and Clara Bow were forced with morality clauses in their contracts. Sign and your personal life becomes the property of the studio you work for. Don't sign and you're looking for a new job. Which is just fucking ridiculous. Because, and uh, I'm going to be on a soapbox for most of this episode. Um, Has a man ever had to do that? I don't think so. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, I have a morality clause in my contract, but nothing about owning my personal life. Right. That's, well, but we'll, we'll get into this. Um, as fast as Hayes and other uplifters of Hollywood could work, the power of the studios and their executives were perversely growing. Cinema had become a vast, lucrative business, but it was star names, not studio brands, that sold tickets. In the 1920s, as Brooks described it, when the producers realized that female stars were a threat to their dominance, they <laughs> right, they waged a concentrated war on the star system, abusing the power they had to make or break the actor's career. Female writers and producers, such as Frances Marion and June Mathis, who had held senior positions in the silent era industry, were squeezed out by the 30s, And soon the business was being run by a group of male executives, many of whom obsessively controlled the films they were, they produced and the women who starred in them. Okay, so I don't hate men. Obviously, I'm engaged to a man. I love a man. I don't hate men. I hate this type of man. That, because it, 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 It's just like, and you have to remember too, that at this point in history, females were still referred to as the weaker sex. And so I think that that probably had something to do with it, that they were like, well, this weaker person can't have more power than me. So I'm just going to get rid of it, basically. That just makes me very angry. Say what you got to say. I have so many feelings. But I do, I do need you to know that I love you and you're wonderful. I know. I'm just a man you can yell at. I'm just a man that I can... I need to get my frustrations out at someone, and I know at the end of the day, you'll still love me. So you're the person that I'm yelling at. Um, it was standard form for starlets to be made over by studio bosses with their name, appearance, and ethnic identity altered. Margarita Can- Cancinino became Rita Hayworth with the help of a dye job and elect electrosis to raise her hairline lucille lasseur became joan crawford after an yeah after an mgm publicity man said her last name reminded him of a sewer inauspiciously inauspiciously louis b mayer named hetty lamar after tragic silent star barbara lamar who had died young after struggling with drug addiction i can't talk today 
given a new name and image, a morality clause to conform to, and publicity stunts, including staged romances with studio stablemates, uh, the star's persona began and ended with the invention of the front office. The star was a creation of the executive's imagination and his corporate asset to be discarded as soon as she was tagged box office poison. So here's another one. Um, Has a man ever had to be in a false relationship unless he was a gay man? No, I don't think so. Unless he was like the one that was, they were like, hey, you're going to date this starlet. So this starlet looks like she's desired or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. guess I have no idea. I have feelings. Um, early in the golden age of Hollywood in 1937, behind closed doors, 20-year-old dancer Patricia Douglas took a job hosting at a Hollywood party. To be strictly accurate, the party was in Culver City, but it was the climax of MGM's annual sales convention and was hosted by comedy producer Hal Roach at his Rancho Ranchero. The party was trailed to the delegates as a stag affair out in the wild and woolly west where men are men. So first of all, um, Douglas didn't know it was a party. After answering a casting call, she was bussed out to the desert location with more than 120 other young women in skimpy Western outfits. It only became clear uh, that they were to be hostesses at a studio party rather than extras on a film when they arrived at the banquet hall and 300 sales delegates burst in. The women danced and the men eyed them up in between eating and drinking their way through MGM's largies. Is that a word? Apparently. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's not how you say it. Um, the party soon became as wild as promised, and David Ross, a 36-year-old sales executive, had Douglas in his sights. He found another man to help him force booze down her throat. Then he dragged her to a car outside and raped her. Quote, I'm going to destroy you, unquote, he told her during the assault. When Douglas pressed charges, Ross's threat took on a new meaning. Fearing another shock on the level of the Rappy Arbuckle scandal, MGM and its thuggish fixer, Eddie Mannix, mobilized mobilized against Douglas, destroying her character and seeing to it that the studio was not named in the news reports. Douglas's crime report disappeared and party attendees testified that Douglas had been drinking. Mannix joked, quote, uh, sorry, quote, we had killed her, unquote. So this this is a problem that I have. Yeah, that's not okay. Um, where the victim's life gets ruined for speaking up. Um, and you know why I have a problem with that. Yep. And it's it's not okay. It's it it's just it makes me so very angry. Because, it like, that man went on to have a career, and he did something really fucking horrible. Like, really fucking horrible. And she didn't, and it's it's just very sad. Um, MGM was using its influence to shatter a young woman's life. Effectively, the Hollywood myth becomes more powerful than the truth. If rumors about what happened to Douglas got out, it only served to keep other women in line. Or 
at least in fear for their careers. So no one else is going to speak up because they saw what will happen, not right. what can happen, what will happen. I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> I need to drink some more wine. Yeah. So now we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about Judy Garland, who most people will know as, oh God. Hold that thought, everyone. <laughs> my headphones flew right off my head. Um, let me fix them. They're all... All right. Technical difficulties. Technical difficulties. So anyway, Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, most people will know Judy Garland as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. So, um, but she was... Basically, she's... And I'll go oh, into God. it. Are you going to ruin this for Krista? Oh, no. Krista, shield your, your yeah. There's some there's some stuff about uh, the Wizard of Oz that you didn't necessarily think about. Um, we'll get into it, but uh, basically, Judy Garland was performing her whole life, and she used to be on like vaudeville and stuff like that. Um, so this comes from an article from Refinery29.com. It's called "What Made Judy Garland's Life So Tragic" by Elena Nicolau. I think is how you say it. Here we go. I'm about to ruin your childhood. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> I mean, Wizard of Art, Wizard of Oz is my childhood, so I'm not really gonna be too upset. Don't watch the Wizard of Oz when you were a kid. I mean, I did, but I didn't. Oh. I I was a Star Wars kid. All right. So was I. Literally, so was I. Star Wars was what I grew up on, not Wizard of Oz. Like we watched it, but mm -hmm. it wasn't a big thing. It was like, eh, gotcha. it's a movie. We own it somewhere. It's, I'm sure we do. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Um, here we go. On June 10th, 1922, a child named Francis Ethel Gum was born to two vaudeville performers in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She was one of three siblings. Gum was a performer from the start. Her first stage performance was at two and a half years old. Her home life was tumultuous. Is that how you say that word? Tumult tumultuous Chewis. yeah you know what i'm trying to say um her father rocky what rocky oh i thought you meant like balboa <laughs> no. i was like what no. it's a um, synonym. thank you um her father frank had affairs with young men which means that her father was probably a gay man he might have been bisexual he could have been he could have been that's that's also doesn't that fall under the umbrella of gay homosexual I mean, it's part of that umbrella, but I mean, bisexual is a whole different thing. That is true. That is true. Um, in 1926, the gums left town, which is just a funny sentence. Yeah. The gums left town. Um, the gums left town to escape scandal and headed to California. Gums' mother, Ethel, quickly tried to escape her daughter, shape, sorry, tried to shape her daughters into stars. Ethel, a controlling stage mom, was the first person to put 10-year-old Francis on a diet of pills, amphetamines in the morning and sleeping pills at night. The pattern would continue once she signed with MGM and her diet was monitored. In 1934, the Gum Sisters rebranded themselves the Garland Sisters. Francis gave herself the new name Judy after a popular song, which was uh, Hoagie Carmichael's Judy. Okay. I've never heard it before, but some people have. 
Um, of all the sisters, Garland stood out because of her extraordinary singing abilities, an adult's voice in a child's body. In 1935, when Garland was 13, she was signed on the spot by Louis B. Mayer of MGM, the head of Hollywood's largest and most prestigious movie studio. Her contract tied her to MGM for seven years. Garland was making $100 a week, which today would be about $1,900. So she was making the equivalent of $1,900 okay. a week. That's that's good. That's pretty good. Um, a, it was a windfall during the Depression. So during the Depression, she's making a shit ton of money. Um, Garland's tenure at MGM got off to an ominous start. Not long after she signed her contract, Garland's father died. She was left in the care of her mother, whom Garland later called the real wicked witch of the West. Ooh. I know. That's ne never a good thing when your child calls you that. Well, yeah, especially like... <laughs> like years later in their memoir. Well, and like <laughs> that's your claim yeah. of fame. That's like saying that... Um, oh, um, Try to think of an equivalent. You got it. I, I got this. That's what... That's like... Uh, Christian Bale saying that his brother is the real Joker. Ooh. See, I got it. Yeah, that, that was a good one. It took that me was a, second. a good one. It took me a second. As part of MGM's cohort of young stars, Garland was forced to adapt to a grueling, nearly impossible schedule. Forever cast as the girl next door. This says girl next door. <laughs> There's a typo. Um, Garland was often making two or three movies at a time. Three hours of early morning school were followed by singing rehearsals and then a day of shooting. Sometimes these marathons wouldn't finish until five in the morning. She was sustained by a diet of pills. She was dependent on them by the age of 15. Oof. I know. Like how? Poor baby. Um, in 1939, when Garland was 16, she got her big break as Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz. Originally, Shirley Temple was supposed to play Dorothy, so the studio tried to make Garland look as young as possible. As in, she had to lose weight. The studio put her on a daily diet of chicken soup, black coffee, 80 cigarettes, that's eight zero cigarettes, oh God. diet pills, and amphetamines. This was every day. She had to smoke 80 cigarettes every day, and she just had uh, chicken soup and black coffee. She's 16. Um... Her, her waist was corseted and her nose affixed with prosthetics. Ooh. I know. Um, which corsets are fucking awful. It was just a horrible invention and they never should have been a thing. Uh, the image of Dorothy followed Garland throughout her career. Quote, I think some of them are pretty angry with me too for not wearing braids and not dressing like Dorothy and not being 11 or 12. Uh, unquote. Garland told James Reed in 1940. Garland was harassed by some of Hollywood's most powerful men. According to Gerald Clark, Garland's biographer, she was frequently approached for sex as a teenager. Mayer, who had been compared to Harvey Weinstein, or I guess he, he has been compared to because he was before, anyway, um, he is said to have groped Garland in his office. While she was singing, he placed her hand on, he placed her hand, Typo. He placed his hand on her breast. Mayer also called her the little hunchback for her height. Um, according to her third husband's biography, the actor who played the actors. Here we go. The actors who played Oz's Munchkins 
also sexually harassed her. Aww. Quote, they would make Judy's life miserable on set by putting their hands under her dress. Unquote. Called Sidney Luft in his memory, Judy and I, My Life with Judy Garland. Um, and I heard, this was years ago, I heard a, uh, she had done like a TV interview or a radio interview or something. And she said they used to like go under her dress. Like, again, 16 year old girl. Most of, most of these Oz munchkins are grown men. Right. So. Um, she was married five times. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Garland's first marriage was essentially a bid for freedom. In 1941, a 19-year-old Garland married 30-year-old composer David Rose against the wishes of her mother and MGM, which I read this the first time and I giggled because David Rose. Oh, yeah. Shit's Creek. Hello. Um, in 1945, she married director Vincent Minnelli. They had a child, Liza, Liza Minnelli, um, but divorced in 1951 as uh, Minnelli was having an affair with a man. Garland had two children with her next husband, Sidney Luft. Her fourth husband, actor Mark Heron, was gay. Garland divorced him before he was, or uh, Garland divorced him after he was abusive towards her. After his brief marriage to Garland, Heron was in a committed relationship with another actor. So this is another um, kind of example of what I was talking about earlier, that gay men were also subjected to this, that the heads of studios would be like, you have to marry a woman. Right. You have to. Um, which we might get into that next week because, oh gosh, what's his name? Rock Hudson. That poor man had a life. Um Garland met her last husband, Mickey Deans, when he was delivering stimulants to her. They were married only three months before she died. Quote, he gave in to her and he fed her, he gave in, he gave in to her and he fed her all the things she wanted. Rosalind Wilder, a colleague, said. Um, all right, here we go. This get, what, what's wrong? Nothing, I'm just uh, doing some quick research on something he said. I'll pull it up later, hit me. Um, this gets rough. When she became pregnant at 19, Rose, which was her husband at the time, and Ethel, her mother, pressured her into having an abortion, insisting a child would ruin her image as an in ingenue. Uh, this practice wasn't uncommon. Betty Davis and Ava Gardner also terminated pregnancies to preserve their image. Sydney Luft also forced Garland into having an abortion. So two of her husbands made her get an abortion, which is fucking awful. Okay, so I missed a little bit. Yes. The first one, did mm -hmm. he do that? Her first husband and her, what was he? He was her fourth, third or fourth husband. Okay. Yeah, but she was 19 the first time. Yeah. Like, fuck that shit. Fuck yeah. that shit. Which, like... Do you, boo. You do what you got to do to survive, but a man forcing you to do that is fucking Not unforgivable. Okay, yeah. Um, After getting hooked on pills at 15, Garland's health declined throughout her life. Her obituary in the LA Times listed her illnesses. Are you ready for this? Yes. Hepatitis, exhaustion, kidney ailments, nervous breakdowns, near-fatal drug reactions, overweight, underweight, and injuries suffered in falls. Her drug habit had impeded her career before. While filming the 1948 film 
the pirate with, with oh the pirate with Manelli, Garland's pill use spiked, and she behaved extremely erratically, missing days of filming and shouting parano- paranoid thoughts on set. So, d- kind of a really tragic life for Judy Garland, which is just like really sad. Yeah, it's just really sad. Um, also, check out the movie. I think it's just called Judy, um, and it's got Renee Zellweger. It came out what two years ago. I've I've heard it's actually very accurate. So, I haven't I, seen it. Yeah, that is really sad. I know. Like, huh? And anyway, are you ready to move on to our next tragic star? Yes. Do I know her? Yes. Oh. Yeah, we've talked about her already, and you and I kind of discussed this already. Oh, okay. You know some of this stuff. All right. Pretend you don't. Okay, so this comes from a Ranker.com article. Um, It is called, Though She Suffered Abuse, Shirley Temple's Story is a Model of Child Star Resilience. Not Shirley Temple. Not Shirley. Yes. Yes, Shirley Temple. Um, This article is by Rob Chirico. Um, It's C-H-I-R-I-C-O. Yeah, I didn't know Mm -hmm. any of this. Any of this. It's awful. Yeah. Prepare yourselves because we're boarding the bad ship lollipop and I can't remember the rest of the lyrics. I was trying to make a pun. It didn't play. All right. So. In the 1935 film, The Little Colonel, right, Colonel spelled without an R. You're right. Uh, Add some vodka to your cherry juice and Sprite because it's about to get dirty. Oh! Came to me. That was nice. I don't, uh, they talk about that in here. I don't remember if I left it in, so I'm just going to say it right now. She did not like the Shirley Temple. Really? Yeah. I, th- I don't think that she didn't like that it was named after her. I think that she didn't care for she just didn't the like. Sprite and the or the 7-Up and the... That's weird. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, so, yeah. In the 1935 film, The Little Colonel, Shirley Temple tap danced down a staircase with Bill Bojangles Robinson and into the hearts of millions. The curly-haired, dimple-cheeked child sang sweetly of life on the good ship lollipop but Temple's real life was anything but smooth sailing. From the first time she appeared on the screen in 1932, she was mistreated and abused both psychologically and sexually. Hollywood tried to hide the flagrant flagrant abuses, but many have been well-documented. Before she retired at the age of 22 in 1950, Temple made dozens of Hollywood films. To accomplish this, she consistently had to fight off lecherous Hollywood moguls who forced themselves on her. On top of that, her first husband cheated on her repeatedly, and her father spent her fortune she had earned without her knowledge or Aww. consent. Um, when Shirley Temple when Shirley Temple appeared in 1932's War Babies, her first credited role, she was only three years old. Please get ready for what I'm about to tell you. Oh, God. The film was one of the baby bur- burgles, bur- burlesques, burlesques, burlesques. It was spelled differently than the movie title. The film was one of the baby burlesques, a series of eight shorts that satirized major motion pictures, film stars, celebrities, and current events. In these often sexually suggestive one real 
children mimic a children mimic adults. They dress in adult costumes, but wear diapers fastened with large safety pins. For that particular short, Temple played the part of a sex worker named Charmaine. I will remind you one more time that she was three years old. And she portrayed a sex worker. And she portrayed a sex worker. Um, which, there's nothing wrong with being a sex worker if that's what you have to do to Just survive. Just do it when you're three. But, yeah, the, you're over-sexualizing a three-year-old. Like, anyway. Uh, in her autobiography, Temple recalls the film series as a, quote, cynical exploitation of our childish innocence. If any of the two dozen children in Baby Burlesques misbehaved, they were locked in a windowless sound booth dubbed the Punishment Box, where they'd be forced to sit on a block of ice. Temple was sent to the box several times, but she says, far as I can tell, the black box did no lasting damage to my psyche. Hang on, I'm getting a call from Fairberry. Um, its lesson of life, however, was profound and unforgettable. Time is money. Wasted time means wasted money means trouble. Unfortunately, it seems as though the creators of Baby Burlesque shared Temple's time is money attitude. The, the young star was forced to work the day after she underwent an operation to lance her eardrum and on another occasion was made to dance on a badly injured foot. Aww. So I have a feeling that uh, some of this is why we have child labor laws today. <laughs> so... Um, Shirley Temple achieved international stardom with the release of Bright Eyes in 1934. Between 1935 and 1938, she was the world's top box office star, leaving Clark Gable in second place. Ooh. By 1940, however, he, her best films with 20th Century Fox were behind her. After two box office flops, Fox dropped her contract. That same year... And at the tender age of 12, she signed with Metro Goldwyn Mayer at the time. Yeah, Mayer. Yeah. MGM is MGM. just not doing well. No, um, not, no. Um, at the time, MGM reportedly ran their child stars into the ground by forcing them to shoot film after film so the studio could capitalize on their youthful talent. Tragically, this wasn't the only way in which key MGM employees exploited the young star. Temple wrote in her autobiography that on her first visit to MGM, she met one of the studio's producers, Arthur Freed. During a private meeting, Freed unzipped his trousers and exposed himself to her, saying, quote, I have something made just for you, quote, which is the creepiest fucking thing that you could say. When you have unzipped your pants as yeah. a man. Um, she responded by giggling nervously and he threw her out of his office. Freed went on to produce such films as Annie Get Your Gun and Singing in the Rain. So those yeah. films have been ruined for me now a little bit. Um, Anita Colby was artistic director for producer David O. Selznick of Gone with the Wind fame. She warned Temple to be careful if she, quote, found him in stockings. Temple writes in her autobiography, Child Star, that this gave her, quote, the impression that casual sex could be a condition of employment with Selznick. I think that's how you say his name. 
I, I don't care. I don't want to say his name correctly. Um, indeed, it seemed it was, as evidenced by an encounter Temple had with him when she was 17. Uh, oh, so this comes uh, from her autobiography. Coming around my side of the desk, he reached and took my hand in his. Glancing down, I saw the tell telltale stocking feet. Pulling free, I turned for the door, but even more quickly, he reached back over the edge of his desk and flicked a switch I had learned from Colby was a remote door locking device, which again is fucking terrifying. I was trapped. Like the cartoon of Wolf and Piglet, once again, we circled the reserved directions around his furniture. Blessed with the agility of a young dancer and confronted by an armorous but overweight producer, I had little difficulty avoiding passionate clumsiness. So, yeah. Fuck that guy. Wow. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. For the entirety of her uh, brief film career, Temple was forced to fight off sexual predators as she was regularly groped, threatened, and terrorized by men. After she rebuked one Hollywood producer for his advances, he responded, quote, look, I'm going to be a big executive. We're going to have to get along. What I had in mind was just a workplace formality, Ooh. unquote. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Sorry, that was really loud. Um, uh, then from her, quote, it may be in your contract, but not mine. You go, girl. Stand up for your fucking self. Um, oh, and then he goes on, quote, sex is like a glass of water. Uh, the man she simply refers to as wizard continued. You get thirsty, you drink, you want sex, you have it. Fuck men. I'm sorry. I love you. And, you know, not all, not all men, but, but fuck this guy. Um, then there was the beloved comedian, George Jess Jessel, uh, who once invited her to his office to discuss a key role in his okay. upcoming film. Seems legit. Uh, we were standing a pace apart. Oh, this comes from her book again. We were standing a pace apart, eyeball to eyeball. In one swift movement, he opened his trousers and, with a sudden reach, encircled me with one arm. I could feel his other hand groping to lift my shirt. Uh, hard on the heels of the wizard, this new assault seemed unreal, but little could I do but thrust my right knee up towards his groin. Pain, disgust, and hate flickered across his face, but I felt no mercy. More and more, the adult movie business seemed populated with a bunch of copulating tomcats. So she stood up for herself, like, huh. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Shirley Temple. Um, in the beginning of Temple's career with 20th Century Fox, the studio was on the verge of bankruptcy. Thanks to the golden-haired child's popularity with the American public, that all changed. After a lengthy legal dispute, Temple's salary at Fox was increased uh, more than sixfold, and her mother received an additional $250 a week, which in, uh, by today's standards is about $4,700 a week. Um, for each completed film, a $15,000 bonus was placed in her trust fund, and the amount, uh, the amount was later raised to $35,000 which is over $665,000 wow. today. Um, so 
all the, every time she completed a film, that much money would go into her trust fund. However, the world's high, highest earning child was only given access to about $13, $250 today, a month in pocket money. Um, after her peak, Temple commanded $10,000 a week. Uh, one can imagine her surprise when, as an adult, she discovered that despite having earned $3.2 million, she only had $44,000 in her bank accounts. Aww. Her father had allegedly failed to place her childhood earnings in the court-ordered trust fund. In her autobiography, The Ever-Forgiving Temple describes the spendthrift's financial ineptitude with total dispassion. Quote, for reasons some may find inexplicable, I felt neither disappointment nor anger. So, like, he spent all her money, and she was just like, eh. Oh, yeah. Like. She's had a hard life. I know. Shirley Temple, man. I gotta watch more Shirley Temple. This lady. Don't do that, because now you're supporting. Well, you're not. Well, I'm supporting her, too. That? Yeah. I, I don't know if her. All those men are dead. It's fine. I mean, so is she. Is she? Is she? You look it up. She died in 2014. I think I remember that now that you say that. Yeah, she was 85. Wow. We're in the air. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, wow. Ooh, excuse me. What? Nothing. What? I'll, I'll share this later. Oh, okay. Um, British writer Graham Greene arguably penned some of the best novels of the 1900s, but his mediations on Temple's career were considerably less savory. Referring to Temple's role in Captain January in 1936, Green wrote, quote, her neat and well-developed rump twisted in the tap dance, unquote. At the time of the film's release, Temple could not have been older than eight. Um, in his 1937 review of Wee Willie Winkie, he doubled down on his lecherous observations, saying, quote, wearing short kilts, she is a complete Tatsy, uh, watch the way she measures a man with agile studio eyes, with dimpled deprivation, adult emotions of love and grease, glissided um, across the mask of childhood, a childhood skin deep. Uh, her admirers, middle-aged men and clergymen, respond to her dubious Coquetries. There is some language in here I have never heard before. Um, to the sight of her well-shaped and desirable little body, packed with enormous vitality, only because the safety curtain of story and dialogue drops between their intelligence and their desires. Thankfully, Temple was given the final word as she and 20th Century Fox promptly sued Green and his publisher for liable and won. Nice. So... Um, John Agar started, starred in a slew of low-budget horror films such as Revenge of the Creature, Curse of the Swamp Creature, and Women of the Prehistoric Planet. In real life, he was an abusive alcoholic. Oh, no. And 17-year-old Temple married Agar in 1945, though the marriage only lasted about five years. They had a child. Did they? Mm-hmm. We might go on to talk about that. I can't remember. Um, according to Temple's autobiography, after vows were exchanged, things went from bad to worse. The handsome actor 
was a violent alcoholic who regularly abused his teenage wife, continually cheated on her, and was frequently arrested for drunk driving. In 1949, Temple sued for divorce on the grounds of mental cruelty. Temple was, idol was an idolized child star who charmed President Roosevelt and his wife. Which one? I don't know. Um, who was around the time of J. Edgar Hoover? Well, it was in the 40s. 40s? Uh... Yeah. Oh, if it's 40s, it's probably, um, God, not Teddy, the other one. Bring one? Yeah, the uh, World War II one. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yada, yada, yada. Uh, she shared chewing gum with Amelia Earhart and sat on J. Edgar Hoover's lap. The Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood created the Shirley Temple, a non-alcoholic drink originally made of lemon-lime soda, grenadine, and a maraschino cherry to honor her, though she didn't care for it. However, by 1945, the 17-year-old's golden hair had turned brown, and she was described as, quote, an unremarkable teenager by film historian David Thompson. Is there something that you need, sir? No, I'm sorry. I'm just... <laughs> you're, you're pulling at my microphone stand and... No, I'm just... Just fidgety? Just fidgeting. Okay. Um... After nearly four dozen films and being recognized as one of the world's most famous stars, the public, the public was moving on. At 22, her screen appeal had diminished almost completely, and her divorce from Edgar no doubt contributed to her new adult image. For whatever reason, she retired from the film business in 1950. That same year, she married Charles Alden Black, after a 12-day courtship, and their marriage lasted almost 55 years until Black's death in 2005. Okay, that makes sense, because she... What the hell is happening? We have a catastrophe. <laughs> oh my goodness, it sounded like uh, buildings were falling down. Okay, so that makes sense, because her legal name is Shirley Temple Black. Oh. So she kept the name. Oh. So um, she probably remarried after him, right. but... Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. After Black, well, in two thousand and five, she died in what fourteen? Yeah, did so she not remarry? I, I, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, okay, that makes oh. sense. Yeah. Um, during that time, she sat on the boards of corporations and organizations, including the Walt Disney Company and the National Wildlife Federation. Her honors and awards are extensive, and they serve as testament to her ability to overcome the many obstacles and challenges that might have devastated someone with less drive. So she made it out. She, I mean, this horrible fucking thing that should have never happened to her, happened to her, but yeah. she, she did it. Like, go Shirley Temple. Um, that's what I have this week. Is that this week? That's this week. It's pretty good. Thoughts? Anything you want to discuss further? I, I know this is something that's been bothering you. No, the, this one isn't so bad because I... This one isn't so bad. Well... And it's going to sound shitty because it's not happening yeah. today. Like, we I, expect I things that. to be shitty back then. Right. Which doesn't mean that they were right. And right. doesn't mean they should have happened. But, it did. yeah. That's, I'm so guilty of all the time saying, like, well, he's a man of his time. Or, like, oh, well, it was the 50s. Like, right. it doesn't mean it was okay. It's 
it serves to say that that type of behavior was acceptable back then, which is why it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just... It doesn't mean it was okay. It right. means people... Like, um, how many episodes of I Love Lucy did Ricky literally take Lucy over his knee and spank her, like, for being bad? I like, have no idea. I've never seen... You mother... Mm. Okay. I'm looking at our bookshelf right now. I see seasons one of two of I Love Lucy. I know what we're doing this weekend. So I Love Lucy is a classic. I feel like you can't understand me unless you watch a couple episodes of I Love Lucy. Okay. That shaped who I am as a human. My mom has often been uh, compared to Lucille Ball. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, that is this week. Oh, do you do you have a hero? I have a hero of the week. All right. Is it is it someone from our story? Or it is. is. It, it's someone from our story. All our right. Our hero of the week, unsurprisingly, is Shirley Temple. Uh, Shirley Temple Black is her legal name. Now here's what we didn't cover, and I'm excited that okay. we didn't cover this, but so I can so I can share. Please tell me. In 1989. She began her political career. She was the 27th United States ambassador to Czechoslovakia. Oh. Uh, in 1970, oh, I guess 1976, sorry. In 1976, she was the chief of protocol of the United States of America. Wow. 1974, she was the ninth uh, United States ambassador to Ghana. She was a Republican, which of the 80s, I, I, I like Republicans of the 80s. Right, well, because Republicans back then are what are Democrats today, correct? Essentially, yeah. yeah. Um, so she did, she led an exciting life after. That is so nice to hear. Cause like all the bad stuff aside, like her career was over at like, you know, age 22, mm -hmm. right? Like it's nice to know that she went on to do wonderful things afterwards. She is a survivor of breast cancer. Or I was. know that. She was a survivor of breast cancer in 1972, oh. so before she began her political aspirations. A tumor was removed, and uh, a mastectomy was performed. Mm -hmm. She announced the results of the operation on radio and television, and in a magazine for McCall's. Wow. Yeah. That, that's kind of big for that back then. She was the recipient, recipient of many awards, including Juvenile Academy Award. The Life Achievement Award from the America Center of Films for Children, Aww. the National Board of Review Career Achievement Award, the Kennedy Center Honors, the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award, and yeah, the way you treated her, you better right, right, right. Uh, in 1935, she left her foots and handprints in the wet cement at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. She was the Grand Marshal of the New Year's Day Rose Parade in Pasadena three times in 1939, 1989, and 1999. And finally, in 1960, she received a, Hollywood, a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame. 1970, she received the Golden Plate Award of the Academy, the American Academy Achievement. In 1980, she was honored by Freedom's Foundation of Valley Forge along with J U.S. Senator Jake Garn actor james stewart john denver and tom abraham who wow and uh yeah and on september 11th 2002 oh wow no, nothing to do with it 
<laughs> a life-size bronze statue of the child temple was erected on Fox Studio lot. And Aww. her name is further immortalized by the mocktail after her, mm -hmm. though she found the drink too sweet. Well, see, she should have done it my way, which is uh, my to-go drink, or to-go, my go-to, um, is a dirty Shirley with Malibu instead of vodka. So it's a Shirley temple with Malibu, and it's delicious. So she became active in the California Republican Party in 1967. Uh, she, tried to, she tried to go to Congress, couldn't do it. That's okay, that's okay. Um, yeah. She ran in the open primary as a conservative Republican and came in second behind Republican Pete McCloskey. And it just shows that she tried to run for Congress several times. Uh, she lost to Henry Kissinger. Oh, wait, wait, hold on, sorry. She got her start in foreign service after her failed run for Congress in 1967 when Henry Kissinger overheard her talking about Southwest, Southwest Africa at a party, and he was astonished that she knew anything about that. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, to, to be, be fair... fair I guess anyone, yeah. She's like, a child actor. Right, like, right, right. if you're at a party and you're a, a politician and you hear a former child actor start talking about the diplomats of uh, Southwest Africa. Right, right. Which, like, let's be real. You hear anybody at a party talking about diplomat diplomats of South Africa. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, if, like, if I'm walking around and all of a sudden I hear Macaulay Culkin say, you know, let me tell you about diplomats of Southwest Africa, I'm going right. to be like... Well, Macaulay Culkin's also crazy. So. I love Macaulay Culkin. Back off. You, Macaulay Culkin's had a hard life. Macaulay Culkin's had a... I have to keep remembering that. He's had a hard life. He's been killed like 18 times. I know. That's, did you hear when Dustin Diamond died the other day, people for a while were like, oh, uh, okay. Because they thought it was just another death hoax on him. That's a sad life. That is dude. so sad. I, I, I'm actually really disappointed the actors saved by the bell because they shunned him for so many years and now they're all yeah. like, well, best friend. He did have a real raunchy sex tape out there. He did do some shitty stuff. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Again, like, don't capitalize a, on your co-stars. I mean, it happens to child actors a lot though, because it's it's a lot to go through when you're like that young. But anyway, that I is why Shirley Temple is the hero of the week because Yay. she survived all of that. Yeah, and went on to do amazing fought. things. I mean, luckily, we don't have to hear about any battles that she lost. But she mm -hmm. fought out of a lot of great yeah. battles. I think I might read her autobiography now. That sounds uh, sounds very good. kind of wish I had Sprite so we can make sure the temples. I know. You want to, what time is it? It's only 8.15. You want to go get some? Ah. Are you sure? Yeah. Did you have anything else? Was that it? That's all I got now. All right. So um, I will post some pictures on the Instagram of Judy Garland and Shirley Temple in case you don't know what they look like. Um, I might also do like them when they were in movies and then them older so you can and any women that are interested in acting take krav maga take krav maga also um fuck politeness as they often say on my favorite murder it's true you don't have to be polite to anybody be a respectful human being but you don't have to be polite to anybody um and that's how i feel about it this week we'll see how i feel about it next week um so yeah, that's uh, that's what we have next week. Like I said, uh, the plan right now is to do like the fifties through the eighties. That might shift a little bit. Um, 
but just more downer stuff. So you can follow me on Instagram at don't touch that it's haunted. You can email me at don't touch that it's haunted at gmail.com. Um, please tell me any of your, uh, I guess the word is favorite um, stories of Hollywood corruption and anything that you want me to cover in coming episodes, anything you think I should have covered in this one. So yeah, uh, please rate, review, subscribe everywhere that you listen to podcasts. That's uh, that's how we get more people to listen to this show. And I'd love more people to listen to this show so I don't feel like I'm wasting my time. Um, yeah, so that's what I have. You have anything else? Nope, I'm good. You're making our cat play with a pen, and I'm afraid it's going to explode in his face. He wants to write. He does? Is he going to write the next Great American Novel? He might. I believe in you, buddy. All right, everybody have a nice week. Uh, just remember, don't touch that. It's haunted. It's haunted.